Welcome to this extended podcast edition of Straight Talk Wealth Radio. Heard across America on broadcast stations and after the show podcast. Heard right here on the internet. With your experts in all aspects of retirement planning, wealth preservation, and income planning, guaranteed to last a lifetime. And now, your host of Straight Talk Wealth, Bruce Whitey. Hey, welcome to the podcast version. This is the world where everything slows down. So if you've been listening to Straight Talk Wealth Radio, you know that every week we broadcast across America, across, there's no T in that, just comes out that way, across America um, in on AM radio. And we talk a lot about a lot of subjects that we have a very compressed amount of time to cover. Uh, we also are to be... Put it in the mildest of terms, we're huckstering to get people to call in because that's how we stay in touch with you. That's how we can provide service to you. That's how we can get you further information. But one of the things you need to get further information each week, typically, if I can get to it, is to listen on this extended podcast version where we can then really take the other... <laughs> I probably get through 30% of an outline when I finally get on the air and I've got uh, AM time ticking away there. But uh, we try to get into the rest of the story here on the podcast. So today what we are talking about, I feel, is perhaps the most crucial issue of any financial planning. And if you're working with financial planners that don't bring this up and really explore it with you, man, they're just doing the same old pie chart, cookie cut uh, things that they've been taught uh, by the brokerage company, and uh, they're not they're they're not thinking about their situation, uh, this, like they should be thinking about your situation, etc. What do I mean by that? What I mean as the long way of saying that in this report or in the show, really, I'm going to talk about the report in a minute because I have a report that you can uh, uh, call in for. Uh, the number for that is 888 uh, You have to do that as part of the retirement roadmap. That is a complete service that we do for no charge and no obligation in your local area to help you see how we can apply it. It, it creates an action plan for any of the uh, issues that we're talking about week to week. Uh, the name of the report that I wrote is Inflation or Deflation, America's Monetary System in Crisis and How to Plan for It. That is also the name of the current show that we've just recorded. And in this report or show, um, what I really am trying to do is I'm trying to address an issue that I truly believe is the most important issue that all of us are going to face financially in the next decade. And it is an issue that goes to the very heart of financial planning that what I'm trying to say is if your planner hasn't discussed this with you, they're missing the boat. And that issue is whether our personally accumulated and saved U.S. dollars will in fact become worth more in the foreseeable future as a dollar, as a denomination, or whether will in, they'll in fact become worthless as a monetary system at the end of this decade. And, and I'm telling you, what I'm really trying to say is you could buy all the stocks, all the mutual funds you want in the 2010s, buy all the best foreclosure real estate, stock up with piles and piles of all the gold and silver you want. But I'm telling you, if you call this shot wrong in terms of whether our monetary system is headed for a shock of inflation or deflation, then all your plans could be for naught. Now, I know you may already believe that you've figured this one out. And you're ready for those changes. But my surveys uh, that we've done 
over the internet and by callers, our surveys have pretty much concluded that most folks have only been very convincingly exposed to one side of this argument. And in fact, they barely realize that there's a whole other very substantiated story that's being told in 180 degrees the opposite. Now, personally, I've looked at this. I've looked at Peter Schiff and I've looked at, um, you know, all the names, Prechter and Harry Dent and uh, all points in between. And there's one thing that I have found any certainty about whatsoever, and that is I don't believe that either side knows for sure what's going to happen. But there's a huge interconnectedness to this issue that you need to understand. This issue affects interest rates. It infects it infects, it will infect if we don't take care of it, bond market fluctuations, and whether the Fed's ever going to run out of cheap money to keep pumping into the system. Uh, it's going to affect the national debt, which is going to affect taxes. It affects the housing market. It affects whether the stock market is headed towards the sky now or whether it's do- due for another hellacious crash. It affects Europe. This is all about the underlying influences of inflation and deflation. And um, I'm going to help you understand that today. And I'm also going to help you understand that by giving you, when you call 888-882-5578, 888-882-5578, my report called Inflation or Deflation, America's Monetary System in Crisis and How to Plan for It. And I got a lot of clips to play today. Um, I'm going to walk you through the lay of the land, but I'm going to just talk about this report real quick. Now, we only give the report away. It's actually pretty costly to produce this thing and print it. So we're only giving it away where you're actually signing up for a free service. It's called a retirement roadmap. The retirement roadmap is executed. That's the right word. It is performed. It is serviced by your local Straight Talk Wealth Advisor. And they are all over the country. And uh, even if they're in another state, quite frankly, they can do a lot of this over the Internet. But what the retirement roadmap is, it's a personalized blueprint of how you're going to live in retirement and through retirement. Now, On a roadmap like this, we take your current portfolio and we stress test it against market losses or inflation, which really is saying deflation or inflation. So we can take an inflationary curve that you think we're going to experience in the future. So you're trying to save for retirement. You're trying to now, first of all, it starts with what are you going to be able to afford to live on on a monthly or annual basis in retirement? So we take your whole portfolio. It's great. But, you know, most of the baby boomers are now beginning to just beginning to be enlightened on the fact that accumulation is not the same strategic concern in financial planning as distribution. Accumulation is the years that you stack up money and you save your money and you invest it and you put it away. And the math is very, very simple to get you through the accumulation phase. It's basically plus 10%, minus 7%, plus 15%, plus 5%, Minus 7%. I mean, it's just the ups and downs each year of the percentage of growth or contraction of the portfolio. And that's all the math there is to accumulation, ultimately. But the math of distribution is completely different. Now you've got a stack of assets and you're going to live on these assets. You're no longer going to put more into them. You're going to live off of them, whether it's your IRA, your 401k, your non-qualified account, your commercial real estate, whatever you've built up or Uh, commercial or, you know, residential that you're renting, whatever. 
So, but the point is now you're going to drain those assets down. So now the math has to become one of, first of all, how long do you need to drain them for? Well, how long are you going to live? Well, who knows? Good. You better plan a nice long margin of error. Maybe give or take 10 years past what you really think you're going to live. Cause who knows you want to, you know, I mean, it would be a beautiful plan, perfect plan. If you thought I'm going to live to age 89 and you were right. And you planned your financial savings to live to age 89. But just imagine how you feel at 88 while you're still alive and you look and you find out that all your principal and all your interest and everything you've got boils down to one more year of financial life and then you're bankrupt. You don't want to be there when you're 88. So that's an interesting part of the math is how long are you going to live? Now, what's the portfolio going to grow at? And how are you going to draw down? What percentage should you be drawing down each year to make that portfolio last? If it doesn't have growth and you draw down on it next year, how do you have to adjust the drawdown so you don't cut the longevity of the portfolio? If we have a market fall off, then you're taking money out and it's falling off. When do you go back to work? How much do you take off? How long is it going to live? What do you got to earn in order? Now, listen, that's not unknowable. That's not a conundrum. That's actually what we do on a retirement roadmap. And the reason we've instituted that um, across our network of advisors is I know from my experience being a financial advisor here in the Los Angeles area that I get people walking in and they ask me silly things like, you know, I, I, I hear everybody's getting widgets, but I think the thingamabobber is really what's going to be in vogue now. And I, I'm getting rid of my widgets. Should I get thingamabobbers? And the only thing I can say to questions like this, which are more common than you think, is I don't even know you. I don't even know your situation. What are you trying to accomplish? And amazingly, people don't know what they're trying to accomplish. All they're thinking with is the accumulation phase. They've never created a strategic plan based on how they're going to use the money. So the retirement roadmap is really important. Now, the main thing that we specialize in, all of our advisors, is not necessarily the, quote, investment portfolio. Some of our Straight Talk Wealth advisors are very good at building investment portfolios. But what we're differing from most of financial planning is the you're going to see there's a GAO report. And by the way, our advisors can send this to you. They've all been sent the report. It's about retirement income and the GAO. It's about a 50-page report. And they really talk about the challenges ahead for the baby boom generation that are going to live off their savings. But the biggest challenge they mention in this report is that we don't have pensions anymore. That we've never tried this experiment in recent times. The Bob Hope generation, by and large, by and large had some sort of, of pension payout, which means two things. It doesn't matter what the investments do. We're telling you that if you work here for X number of years, this is going to be your check. It might be a formula like 75% of what you were making when you were here or 90 or, you know, the last five years, the last 10 years average, whatever it is. But you're getting that. And stop worrying about the investment portfolio. That's our problem. You're going to get the check. And the second guarantee is you're going to get the check as long as you live. And there's different formulas. You and your wife will get it or your wife will get half the payment that you got together, whatever. But those were all just guarantees that people used to retire on. The boomers, by and large, don't have that anymore. And so what this report by the GAO is saying is this is a tremendous shift, a tremendous shift in how we're going to manage retirement for this generation.
So uh, what we specialize at Straight Talk Wealth Radio, what we specialize in is the reconstruction of pension concepts on a private level. And we're mostly talking to right now those that are close to retirement or in retirement, because even if you've started into retirement, it's not too late. What can we guarantee that regardless of the ups and downs in the market, regardless of where that all goes, and I'm making you aware of where it might go in this issue of the show, but regardless of where it goes, you can get a check that you can depend on for the rest of your life. Now, I would submit to you, why is your entire financial future hinged upon events that you can either predict or control? And that's all we're trying to say. And that's what Straight Talk Wealth is about. And that's what our advisor network is about. So going back to basics here, there's a retirement. And this is the last pitch I'm going to do to the end of the show. The retirement roadmap, you get that for no charge and no obligation. What it is, it is a personalized blueprint of how you're going to live in retirement, through retirement. It'll stress test any portfolio against market losses or inflation. It's going to include a personalized set of recommendations on exactly what our Straight Talk Wealth Advisor can guarantee you in retirement. And I'm talking about rates of between 6 to 8%. And there are certain terms that you must know about that apply to that. But you need to understand these are not bank guarantee rates. These are pension-style guarantee rates. They're much larger. And they'll also include guarantees that if your account goes to zero... And there's nothing left. And you spent all the interest and all of the principal in your account and you're still alive. You know what? Our companies are still going to send you the check. So the result of a retirement roadmap is not a, a static pile of papers and graphs sitting in your in basket, as we like to say. But it's actually a fluid conversation and a puzzle that you actually solve with a live expert on guaranteed methods of retirement planning. And it includes looking at everything you're going to hear today about inflation and deflation. And when you call 888-882-5578, 888-882-5578, by the way, that's 888-8-TALK-STRAIGHT is what that is, then um, our advisors are also going to send you, once you've scheduled to get the results of the study, they're going to send you my complete 50-page illustrated report called Inflation or Deflation, America's Monetary System in Crisis, and How to Plan for It. And in that, uh, you're going to get the full story today. I'm going to try to run through the basics of it. Now, I'm going to include some audio clips and all that. But first of all, let's just talk about what inflation and deflation is. Um, inflation is defined as a continuing rise in the general price level, usually attributed to an increase in the volume of money and credit relative to available goods and services. Now, you notice it says an increase of, in the volume of money and credit. Now, most of us think we're going to have inflation because the Fed's printing money. That would be an increase in the volume of money if it could get down into the system. It's jammed up. It's not actually getting to the system. The banks are hanging on to it. What it is getting to is the banks and the other institutions that should be distributing that down to us and giving us easier credit. Okay. Um, They're just reinvesting it in risk assets and it's pumping the markets up and it's making the markets really good while they made the economy is not so great. Now, if you make the markets really good, eventually there is a ripple effect of confidence in the economy, but it's kind of like really just a drug. It's not really fixing anything. It's just feeding drugs into the economy by way of getting everybody high on the stock market. And you're going to hear more about that in a minute. Now, deflation. Oh, and by the way, 
when we talk about an increase in the credit relative uh, to available goods and services, that's what you saw in the housing market. If you think we're in for inflation because of what the Fed did, we've seen tremendous inflation by simply looking at the housing market and everything assume, uh, uh, with that. So that was inflation. And now what we're seeing is that credit relative to available goods and service is bursting and it is deleveraging, which gets into the next phase, which is deflation. Deflation is a contraction in the volume of available money or credit that results in general declines in prices. I'm actually reading from my own report. So what does the what do these look like? Well, if we look at deflation, deflation would be like the great stock market crash of 1929. And there's a whole section on it in the report. But basically, let's look at winners and losers. Winners in deflation are those holding substantial wealth in cash or cash equivalents because every hard asset is losing value in price. So the more cash you have, the more you can take advantage of falling prices. The problem is, where do you hold that money? Because you can't, because what happens typically in a deflationary fall is the banks begin to fail. Large institutions, now why do the banks fail? They're, they're holding lots of cash, aren't they? No, they're not. They're not holding cash. Every dollar that you put in a bank, they're allowed to loan it out 10 times. They're holding assets and collateral on, on loans. So when the banks failed in 2008, it wasn't because their cash failed. It's because the real estate that they really owned that they thought was making them rich failed. So when we have deflation, the banks are typically out of cash and into some, now in 1929, what they were holding is collateral and stocks. They literally, you know, they let people loan on margin. So you'd borrow money from the bank to go buy stocks and the stock market went up. So your stock was worth more. So you could offer more collateral to the bank. They'd loan you more money. And the banks were holding tons of stocks that they thought would never go down and were only going up. And they make all this money on, the, on their interest on the loans. And then when the day the stock market crashed and the banks don't have the cash. They own the stocks and the stocks are worthless. This time around, they owned real estate and the real estate become became worthless and banks failed. So the trick is, in that case, you want to hold cash. I don't recommend keeping it in your mattress. I don't recommend burying it in the backyard. But you have to look for institutions that will not fail in a deflationary spin. Institutions that are not highly leveraged out. And, and that's covered in my report. Where to find those institutions is covered in my report. But you, But they can't be... Leverage. They have to hold the cash and actually have it somewhere. And you want to get as good of an interest rate as you can, because frankly, any interest rate in a deflationary spin is a good deal. So when I say substantial wealth or cash or cash equivalents, those are the winners. By substantial, I mean that if jobs do not come back for quite some time, you will survive without work by living off your cash. The losers in a deflation are those who've been left holding their wealth in hard assets that have caved in on value, such as real estate or stocks. Their wealth's gone. Those that need to work and earn a decent wage and keep a roof over their head and have nothing to fall back on also wind up typically being losers in a deflationary spin. Now, inflation, where have we seen inflation? Well, we've seen inflation in the 1970s in the United States. Now, there's a couple different kinds of inflation. We cover it in the report. Uh, there's demand pull inflation and cost push. Um, cost push results from a uh, actually 
Demand pull. That's what I want to talk about. That's prices go up because demand has increased. More people want goods or services than the current system can supply. All right. That would be the economy heating up. Um, cost push inflation is when the some supply is just dried up. And that's the Arab oil embargo of the 1970s. That one cost of that one element got then the whole economy depending on it rose so high that it pushed inflation into everything else. Okay? Now, where have we seen inflation? We've seen inflation uh in Germany during the Weimar Republic. That was just the government owed tremendous debt, the government of Germany. So they just ran the printing presses to pay off the debt. Here's a bunch of worthless money. And it just became the more that they printed to pay off countries for their World War One debt, the less their money became worth. And that's where you saw people lighting their stoves with piles of, of uh, Wehrmark marks. Uh, Zimbabwe recently had a tremendous um, inflation for the same reason. And we saw the cost push inflation of high uh of a particular commodity that every depended on in the United States in the 1970s. Now, during inflation, let's talk about winners and losers. In inflation, the winners are those that are holding substantial wealth in assets that are increasing with the rate of inflation or better. So you want to hold hard assets. Commonly, precious metals or inflation-protected government securities. Uh, it's kind of like cash, but it's infl- inflation-protected cash but many other commodities can be good bets as well. Basically, it's a commodities for portfolio. It's hard assets you want to hold during inflation. The losers have been those that have been left holding their wealth in cash. All right, so what are the current pressures on this? In order to understand the current pressures, more than anything else, the most recent critical mass that changed everything and still threatens to cause substantial upheaval in our economy and our financial markets for still years to come was the real estate and the banking bubble of 2008 and 2009. Okay? Now, um, if you understand what happened there, what's so significant about that is that is an actual in our lifetime play out of inflation and deflation and the pressures of it. Now, uh, that's all laid out in the report. But here's the basic good, the give and take I want you to understand. Deflation happens typically because there's been a lot of money invested in something that didn't work out. And it finally bursts. And when it does, then there's less money. There's less money going around. There's a contraction of the money supply. During the Great Depression, when 10,000 banks failed, there was a 31% contraction of wealth, of the money supply in the country. When governments try to offset that, they begin to print money to try to replace it. And the basic thing you've got to understand to get your wits wrapped around this issue is how much private sector debt is there to burst or still to burst and how much is the government throwing at it to try to fix the problem because that's going to be the ultimate balance of whether we're going to have inflation or deflation. If private sector bursting happens more rapidly than the government can replace it, we're going to have a deflationary spin. If the government just works full time to replace it and overdoes the job, then we could have hyperinflation. Now, here's an interesting statistic for you, statistic for you, which is that uh, in about the last eight to 10 years, we've increased the private sector debt in the United States by about 20 or $22 trillion. Now that, my friends, is much more inflationary than anything the government can do. 
uh, I believe at the peak of 09, we were at about $47 trillion of private sector debt. So if we even take that bubble back down from to where we were eight years ago, you're talking about $20 trillion of debt bursting. That's just American private sector debt. Okay. The government has printed $2 trillion. Now, it's plugged a hole in it, but that is what you see happening around the world is the constant pressure to hold that deflationary uh, whirlpool at the bottom of the ocean at bay somehow. Um, what I want to do is I want to tell you very quickly that we have a whole interview with Harry Dent. It's an hour-long interview. You can find it on our website at www.straighttalkwealth.com which is probably where you're listening to this podcast if you aren't getting it already on iTunes. You can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes by just looking up in the podcast directory, Straight Talk Wealth Radio, and click on subscribe. But what happened here was that we just had this tremendous uh, amount of loose credit that just got completely out of control, and it's burst. So that is the pressure we've got. Now, I want to play you a little bit of an interview I did with Harry. You can find this on the website complete where I asked him, what does deflation look like and how deep is the hole that we're in? Describe to me what the world of deflation looks like and how deep is this rabbit hole? Well, it's deep because we created more private debt than any time in history. From 2000, 2008, we went from 20 trillion to 42 trillion in private debt. Now the government debt, which everybody focuses on, went from five to 10. That's bad enough. You shouldn't double government debt in a boom period. You should have surplus. Yeah. But we, we've been on constant deficits in the drug, the crack, since the 70s. We've run only three years of surpluses in four decades. Mm-hmm. We've run constant trade deficit. That's borrowing from China mm-hmm. and countries we export to. So we've been on this drug for a long time. And, the and, drug of just borrowing everything yeah. to make our needs. And, and it's like any drug. The, it takes more and more to get less and less effect. So yeah. eventually the drug kills you because you take so much to get less and less effect that your economy can't support it and, and you die. And that's where we're at. The, the drug isn't working. The stimulus isn't working. Consumers can't borrow anymore. They don't want to borrow anymore. Businesses can't borrow anymore. Uh, China's worried about taking more of our treasury bonds after taking them for so, so if long. we have a government that's 14 trillion in debt and private sector debt 42 that trillion. is 42 trillion and that begins to hemorrhage i go back to my original question how deep is that rabbit hole okay. and what's the world going to well, look the like point. for the next the 14 trillion in government debt's only going to go up they're going to run deficits even in, in recovery and even more so if we go down and we think we're going to go down again the key is that $42 trillion. That private debt can deleverage and be written down overnight if the economy gets bad enough. How the economy started to melt down, the government said, here's 2 to $3 trillion to say, we just, we're just going to stop it. We're going to stop mm-hmm. the hemorrhaging. Just, right. We're saying they're running out of bullets. It's going to come back. It didn't work. Housing's not bouncing back. Banks still have massive bad loans. Consumers are still massively underwater in mortgages. So this is going to come back. This $42 trillion could go to $20 trillion in a matter but of years. But how do you write down that much debt without people getting very, very hurt? Okay, here's the thing. If you actually wrote down the debt, people wouldn't get hurt, except their credit ratings. If somebody has a $500,000 mortgage and their house has fallen to two hundred fifty, dollars and the bank wrote that down to two fifty, dollars they just saved $250,000 in principal and interest. For 30 years, 15 the years for the homeowner did. The bank the sent bank, money, and the, the people bank who bought ahead. and bought and bought okay. and bought all those loans out are all right. out of money. Exactly, but that's the point. When you take the people who took the risk are the banks 
and the investment firms that did these toxic mortgages and bundle them up, they should take the hit. And if the government has to help them to keep them from melting down, do that only when they take the hit. Don't give the banks two to three uh. trillion for doing nothing and keep doing the same thing and paying your bonuses. So I would have said, for every, let's say, every dollar that a bank writes down, the government should have said, we'll take 30 cents to make sure the banks don't totally cave, but we gotta write this 42 trillion back down to reality. Then people aren't get kidding, getting kicked out of their homes. Then the foreclosures are not coming back on the market and making the real estate market worse. The government is making everything worse by being in denial and trying to keep the bubble going. We need to deleverage the bubble. When you write down debt, you destroy money, which makes dollars scarce. When you lend money, you make more dollars than the economy's growing. Okay. Now I want to address two things that uh, are in that interview that he talks about. He talks about running out of bullets. I'm going to explain to a minute, explain to you in a minute how the government, see one of the cool things about the podcast is we don't overdub my flubs. I just keep going. Um, And I want to talk about the banks took the risk. Now, listen, folks, what he's saying is very sensible. Let's just let the, let's just reset that debt. But when you have $20 trillion of debt growth in the last eight years, that applies to your pension funds. That, that applies to so many places that are counting on that debt that to simply say, sorry, you invested, you're the one that takes the hit. And, and, and how about the liars that packaged up the collateralized debt obligations and rated them A and gave us misleading information about what we or our pensions were investing in. Why aren't those guys in jail? No, we're just going to take the hit. Now, I understand from a global outlook, Harry's going, it's the only way out of this rabbit hole. And he's probably right. But that's what you need to understand, that if that happens... That is another aspect of a deflationary spin. It is this this sort of like people are going to get hurt. They're going to think they had assets that they don't have. The guys with the cash, they'll be fine because things are going to be real cheap out the other side. But anyone holding those assets, and that's why the government doesn't want anyone to get hurt. And they keep trying to plug it and plug it. And really, you know, uh, and a very interesting book, I have to say, I'm reading Senseless Panic. I think it's called Senseless Panic by Bill Isaac, former director of the FDIC. And his argument is we shouldn't have bailed them out. We should have just bailed out the actual in, um, account holders in the banks, use the FDIC to get through this crisis. We never should have gone to Congress with a gun to everybody's head. But now that we have, you've created this situation where, um, okay, we bailed out the banks. Anything changed? Now, I'm going to play for you in a little bit why nothing's changed the banking system. And that risk that we got hit with in 08 is still in the banking system. But the bottom line is that is, that is the sanity would be to let the debt wash. The problem is those that are holding the debt, which by the way, are me and you, unless we're protected truly by the FDIC, but then again, we're holding it in our investment accounts. We're holding it in our 401ks and our pensions. We're going to get hit. You know, Greece, they don't use the word default, but Greece just defaulted. Now, what happened is um, 
And that's Greek sovereign debt, a little different than private debt. But what's happening in the United States is the United States is trying to absorb all the private debt. And at some point, the government may absorb it. And finally, the government defaults. I'm going to talk about that in a minute because that has to do with running out of bullets, as he just mentioned. But the bottom line is, is that if we um, if we let it wash, we're going to get hurt on that end. If we don't let it wash, then we wind up with an economy that must be fed more and more crack cocaine by the government to pretend that nothing's going on, to keep plugging the holes in the dike, so to speak, of this hemorrhaging debt. And there's still a lot more to hemorrhage. Now, all of this is covered in my report in detail. By the way, it's very illustrated. I I take pride in the fact that a high school sophomore can get through the information in the reports And in the report, I actually give you a strategy on how to plan simultaneously for inflation or deflation because we really don't know what's coming next. And the report is called Inflation or Deflation, America's Monetary System and Crisis and How to Plan for It. And you only get that if you actually uh, enroll for the Retirement Roadmap Free Service. It's a financial planning service. Uh, I went through at the beginning of the hour. And since you guys don't tune in and tune out, I won't go through it again. But again, just reminding you, the number for that is 888-882-5578, 888 Now, how would the government run out of bullets? Can't they just run the presses forever? No. The answer is that when we run these presses, that money is getting bought up by bondholders across the globe. Now, if the bondholders think, well, you know, we'll buy it right now because you guys will come through this. Your economy's strong, and one day you'll pay that debt off. Then it'll keep interest rates low. People feel there's minimal risk, and they will continue to buy it. Now, it appeared before we had the whole European thing really blow up. One of the reasons that interest in America is still cheap today, it should have gone up. You would think the bond markets at this point are saying, How much more money, Bernanke? How much more money you got to put in this thing to keep it alive? Every time you come off of quantitative easing and printing more money, your economy sags. Look, you know, we'd like to buy more of this, but you're becoming more of a risk. And at some point, there's a crossover where the markets say, "Uh uh-uh, we want higher interest if we're going to keep buying this. The minute they ask for higher interest, guess what happens to us? Our interest rates go up. We have more, we, we can't get money as cheap either. And the economy slows down. Oh, interesting. So now the world bond markets say, you want us to buy more U.S. government debt, but you have a slowing economy. That's going to cost you even more. And there comes a point actually where the Fed gets checkmated. Now, Dent was saying that should have happened already, but he didn't foresee what a flight there would be from Europe to America. So the question is, how long is that going to last? And Harry's actually saying that 2012 is probably going to be inflationary, maybe even 2013, that the bullet that should have hit us, where the Fed ran out of bullets and said, I can't QE anymore because interest rates are getting too high. He's going to say, he's, he's got an open invitation now. Go ahead and do it. In fact, let's play a clip about that really quick. Harry Dent, stocks have rallied this year. But you're, of course, not buying into it. Tell me why. Well, long term, the Fed is fighting the aging of the baby boomers, which is a very predictable trend, and $42 trillion in debt, private debt, that started to deleverage in 2008. To me, they can't win this war over time, but I tell you, the Fed just got a gift. 
that this flight of capital from Europe caused Treasury bond yields to go down below 2% just when we had strong fourth quarter growth, which we predicted months ago. We said fourth quarter, first quarter is going to be strong. Inflation is going to stay up. I thought that would put a break on QE3. With this lower rates, the markets are saying, go ahead, QE3. So I do think we're going to slow. Uh, later this year. I think QE2 is going to wear off on a one-year lag, as it, just like QE1 did. But I think this time the Fed's going to stop in. You get QE3. So we get a mini crash. We get a rally in the year end, probably to new highs. And then I'm more worried about the markets in 2014 and 13 and 14 because baby boomer trends are just going to keep working against this recovery. It's not a sustainable thing. So we get QE3 later this year. Now, does the fact that it's an election year matter? Of course, they say that the markets do well in the year before election years, but are we going to get some more money because this is an election year? Yeah, in general, election years aren't bad. I mean, they're going to make the economy look as good as possible. Now, last year, I would have thought, yeah, but the Fed's running out of bullets because, again, we expected an expansion of the economy short term. And I said, well, you can't do QE3 when that's happening. But now, again, with these low rates, I, I think they will. So I think it matters some. And uh, but but we see from 2012 to 14, this is kind of the crisis time. This is when the baby boomers switch from what they call, we call their kind of peak and plateau phase of spending, they actually start declining into retirement. And how does one invest in this demographic period that you're looking at? Very carefully. I mean, it's a bubble boom. We've had three bubbles, you know, 1995 to 99, 2002 to 7, and now 2009 into 2012. Bubbles burst. I don't think this bubble's ready to burst yet at this point. You know, it's, it's hard to judge a bubble. But you have to be investing in funds that don't correlate with the market. You have to have a, a point of view. Of, look, the more the market goes up here, the more I take off the table because the downside's way greater than the upside in a bubble. And if we do see a crash, say, in 2013 or 14, that's when you can buy again. So you've you got to go opposite the trends because this is a sideways gyrating market. So finally, we've been talking about the United States and our demographic problem. Pretty much Europe is ahead of us when it comes to that demographic problem. So what about the emerging markets? Everyone says that this is going to be the century of China. Yeah. So is that the place to be, or are they going to run into their own headwinds because they've overbuilt? Well, China's overbuilt dramatically. China's been moving people from rural to urban areas where you triple their income, so it's a good formula for growth. But they've been overbuilding to do that. All these people come in rurals, they're building homes, they're building infrastructures, they're building factories and stuff that they're not even using. 24% of homes are vacant. Whole cities like Ordos, a million, totally vacant. So China's got its own bubble. And I think when we slow down, they slow down, they have a hard landing, and then about a decade from now, the emerging world comes back stronger than ever. But China will not be as strong. China is the one emerging country where their workforce is going to be shrinking like Japan and Europe. By the way, uh, regarding this uh, China bubble, uh, if you go to YouTube, uh, the name of the video you want to watch, which is very striking, it's about a 14-minute video. I wish I could give it all to you here. We've played some excerpts before on the show is from Dateline. It is an Australian TV show, Dateline. Uh, if you look up China's ghost cities and malls, you will get a firsthand look at these ghost cities that China has built that nobody's living in them. But uh, getting back to here in the States and, and, and uh, the more immediate issues of what we're talking about today, the reason I played you that last clip is just to get into the concept of where's the end of the bullets for the Fed? Where does the Fed stop being able to stimulate the economy? Now, therein lies the ultimate question about 
inflation and deflation and what's going to happen and how strong it's going to be. And there's a summary page here in my report. I'm just going to read it to you because first of all, before I get to the summary page, let me just read you this. You'll see a chart in this that shows the different, it's a stacked chart and it shows different levels of debt in the United States uh, projected to 2014. Okay. And um, we have household debt there. We have business debt, financial debt, and government debt. The financial sector debt is the largest sector of debt. That's just debt that's there for to invest in in investments. It's it's not what businesses owe to run. It's not what households own. It is seventeen trillion dollars in two thousand nine at the peak of the credit bubble, at a point where the government debt was twelve trillion. So dig. We're all worried that the government will never pay its twelve now fourteen trillion dollars back. But the Amount of borrowing on this in this country. This is a historic and projected breakdown of U.S. debt by category. Just in the United States, financial sector debt is 17 trillion. How's that going to get paid off, or is that going to bust? And if that busts, that is exactly the pressure that caved in the markets that made the government throw another two trillion at it to stop it. So ultimately, this is what it comes down to. There is a tsunami of private sector bad debt that still has to burst and unravel. And conservatively, it's going to be multi-trillions of dollars. Now, even if the federal government were to throw another $1 trillion of taxpayer bailout into the next wave, some say it would be like trying to turn the tide of a tsunami coming ashore by standing there with a garden hose to fight it. If the Fed stands by and they let that debt wash out, while ultimately it would be good for the economy, you just need to know that in the meantime, Banks are going to fail. People's savings are going to be lost. Assets like stocks, real estate, oil, and yes, even gold are going to tumble in a downward vortex in value. Uh, you'll have failed businesses, unemployment. We saw just what we saw in 08, only it'd be the final wash. And there would be a depressionary inflation, deflation that could last a few years, maybe even longer. Now, if the Fed goes all out to buy the bad debt, and earnestly try to replace the contraction of the money supply by running the printing presses full-time, and not that they even could completely, then we could experience a major watering down in the money supply with worthless dollars being pumped into the economy, and we could see the type of hyperinflation that the gold bugs have been warning us. The wave is coming. There is more bad debt to wash out. It's just up to the Fed now on how hard they're going to fight this versus trying to let it wash back out. Right now, it looks like they feel they can keep kind of printing more money. And and as long as the world keeps buying our debt cheaply, he'll keep pumping it in there. But we're going to see what happens at the end of the road when interest rates finally climb and the Fed realizes that he's going to throw our interest rates up, which in itself is going to slow the economy, not speed it up. And that's where he hits a dead end. Now, the end of the day, what do you do about it now? To understand what you do about it, first of all, get my whole report, Inflation, Deflation, America's Monetary System in Crisis, how to plan for it. Because there's a whole other discussion to have, which is, how about the banks today? Did Congress fix that problem? Or what happens if this banking system fails all over again? Great book. You got to go out and read it by Gretchen Morganson. 
um, uh, called Reckless Endangerment. She goes into how the banking system says how outsized ambition, greed, and corruption led to economic Armageddon. And it talks about the fact that nothing got fixed in the banking system. David Stockman, uh, we have a page on our website, which is all about the banking system. I've got an interview with Gretchen Morganson done by Bill Moyers, which goes into this in detail. And David Stockman, Ronald Reagan's former budget director, also says they ain't fixed it. It's ready to happen all over again. So uh, both of these guys laying quite an incredible story. We've covered some of that in the report. Okay. And let me just tell you here, let's go back to the basics because part two of the report is strategy. You hear me clicking my mouse as I'm going through looking at the report. To look at strategy, and the bottom line is, Harry's saying we're going to have more inflation for a while, but ultimately we have to get rid of this bad debt. It's going to be a deflationary pull downward. Um, let's just go back to the basics, what you do about it. Under inflation, hard assets or commodities will increase in value and price while cash buys less and less of it. So the foremost question is going to be which assets will perform the best. And that can get very speculative. Is it oil? Is it food futures? Is it metals? Now, generally thought, it is thought that precious metals are quite favorable, but certainly one would want a diversified selection of commodities and may also want to include uh, maybe treasury inflation protected securities, but that may well be undervalued for inflation. Um, but the bottom line is you've got to hold this commodities portfolio. Now under deflation, asset prices are going to be free falling and the banks will be dry and broke and credit will be extremely hard to come by. And many people will have lost their light savings to bank failures, uh, which could be so massive as to completely overwhelm FDIC protection as did occur in 2008. Don't forget, because it was an almost one trillion act of Congress called TARP that bailed out the banks, not the FDIC. So in this scenario, cash is king and whoever still has their cash will be able to buy so much more than ever before. And if we have a global depression, just think of the possibilities. Now, two diametrically different, diametrically different strategies to take. Now, I want you to ask yourself this. I know most of you probably have your wits wrapped around the inflation question. If I said to you, you knew there was going to be hyperinflation starting tomorrow, what would you go out and throw your money into? Yeah, everyone's going to say commodities, gold. Now, that's fine, and that is actually, in fact, I'm going to you know, tell you that ultimately the answer to this question is you hold a little bit of both. But I think what we really wanted to get into on this report is people don't understand the deflationary side of it. So let's talk the inflationary first, and then I'm going to tell you the key to the deflationary side. Because if I asked you, yes, of course, you invest in gold. Now, as I asked Chuck during the broadcast show, Chuck, what would you invest in if we have deflation? And he just looked blank. Nobody knows. There's an answer. But the bottom line is for inflation, you want to have commodities. You just need to know that while commodities typically deal with things that people are going to need day in and day out, like food and energy, price trends can be quite volatile. People are always going to need food, but when buying food futures, you can still be at the mercy of good and bad harvest seasons and other mitigating factors. Oil prices will certainly rise with inflation, but if prices get too high, uh, our car manufacturer is going to compensate and battle back by making more fuel efficient vehicles. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that go into it. And the bottom line you just need to know is you need to wisely select that portfolio and very actively manage it because trends can change 
very, very quickly. That's an actively managed portfolio. Now, the deflationary portfolio can be much more passively managed, but this is what you need to know. And I'm reading from my report, which you can get when you call 888-882-5578. For deflation, your cash or equivalents can't earn nothing. I mean, they could factually, as long as you held on to your money, you'd be okay. But you don't want them earning nothing. But they can't be at risk either. Because so many institutions that went in and leveraged your money into the assets, when the assets fall, are going to be broke again and questionable whether they're going to have your money. So you have to search for the largest guaranteed earnings that are from the safest institutions. Okay? So that gets into more study we do in the report. And I'm going to let you order the report and learn more about these different institutions. But in the report, we have a risk primer 101. It's taken from any basic financial advisor's licensing course. And it talks about how the dominoes would fall. If we had, you know, assets falling, where the dominoes fall and how long until the actual dollar falls, in which case the country falls. Um, That gets into it. And from that, you then want to look at what, where are your institutions holding the money? Are they holding it in stocks? That would be insane. That'd be like 1929. We're not going to go there again, are we? But how about maybe like really funky mortgages? That's only six degrees of separation. I'd like to know how much your bank's got in that. How much do they have in real estate? So when we look at the institution, we have a whole section in this on how to look at where institutions hold their money. And what's interesting is this. I just want to tell you that we did find an industry that has savings accounts that are much greater uh, interest rate than most banks, where most banks today are maybe a half a percent, if you're lucky, on long-term CDs. When you go into the pension market, and as if you've been listening to our show, you know we're really big on pension concepts. That is real. Banks are only short-term money. Banks are like, you know, six months, a year. That's not long-term money. That's why you don't get a high rate of interest. But if you go somewhere where you're building a pension concept for yourself and you are, in fact, letting that money on a 20 to 30-year plan turn into, one, something you're eventually going to tap. And let me be very clear what I mean by pensions. There's two guarantees that go into pension. You heard Terry Dent talk about non-correlative investing, meaning don't correlate your outcome to the markets. That means two, that, that relates very closely to two guarantees in any pension. One is if you put your money, let's take a cop or school teacher, they have a real pension. Now, granted, one day that might blow up when the pension companies decide they can't make their guarantees. But assuming their guarantees are made, it's very simple. Ms. Teacher, you worked for the district for so long and you hit such and such an age And we will give you X, Y, Z percentage of your old salary guaranteed. And it will be for the rest of your life. Two guarantees. One, you're going to get a check and this is how much it's going to be. And it may or may not be adjusted for inflation. But that's the check you're getting. So don't worry about your investments. This isn't an investment. It's your pension. And two, it'll last as long as you can spend it. As long as you live. Now, there's an element of pooled risk that goes into pension Um, actuarial management. That's what we're talking about. Same concept. We're trying to get most of America to start focusing on getting their money put into some portion of their portfolio. Some piece of that pie needs to be the guaranteed portion of the pie, meaning this is what you're going to get if you let it sit so long and you hit XYZ age and we 
guarantee it's going to last forever because we're pooling the risk of all of the participants. That would be a non-correlative investment. So the bottom line for that is there's an industry that works with that, that we use. And because it's a longer-term commitment where you see half percent interest rates at the bank, this industry currently is offering uh, interest rates while that money's sitting there before you pull the lever and turn it into a drawn-down pension of growth from 6 to 8% per year compounded, guaranteed. Now, the interest rates fluctuate, and I suppose I should do the whole disclaimer that interest rates are on the move, and, you know, I don't know when you're listening to this versus when I taped it. But we've had periods just recently of 6 to 8% guarantees. Now, go to my website and watch the slideshow. Go to the solutions page at straighttalkwealth.com and watch the slideshow called Historic Rates of Return, Wall Street's Dirty Little Lie. Because in that, I'm really going to strip down the basics of trying to average a return out of a fluctuating stock market that goes up and goes down. And what you're going to learn is an average rate of return on anything that can decrease in value somewhere during the average is a total, total lie. It's a meaningless statistic, and you'd be, you'd be crazy to look at average rates of return in terms of what you expect to get out of an investment which has in its history a down year because it changed it. You'll see you could literally wind up with a 20 per I show in that slideshow how you could get a 20% per year average rate of return and totally bankrupt the account and have no money left. But you actually did get a 20% average rate of return out of that versus compounding interest year after year, simple, low, low amounts of interest compounding year after year. And I'll give you a simple example. If you had a 7.2% interest rate, doesn't sound like a lot for your investments. You always want more. But you know what? If you had 7.2, that means that your money will double every 10 years. Now, back in the 90s, we had some guarantees like that. I got laughed out of seminars when I would go in and say, hey, we have 7.2 and it's guaranteed. And said everybody said, who wants 7.2 when I'm getting 30% in the markets? What a moron. But let me ask you something. Did you double the performance of your, the growth of your money? Not what you put in extra, but just on the money that was there 10 years ago in the market, have you doubled it? Or 12 years ago, you can go back pretty far on this and you probably haven't doubled that money. The takers that took that 7.2% compound interest guarantee at that time doubled their money every 10 years, which means quadruple in 20. Go watch that slideshow. It's called Historic Rates of Return, Wall Street's Dirty Little Lie. It is on the Solutions webpage. But that industry that we use during the Great Depression when 10,000 banks failed and the money supply of the country vaporized by 31%, that industry lost six-tenths of 1% of the aggregate assets of the industry. In other words, it really didn't skip a beat and it met all of its promises. So heading out here on the uh, podcast, we're going to wrap it up here, but I want to play for you. Um, I want to play for you a clip here. Uh, we'll both Harry talked about non-correlative. Um, I want to talk about. Um, I want to. I'm going to let. Excuse me. Here I am stumbling, and I'm not going to cover it up. I'm going to play you Rodney Johnson, who is Harry Dent's president of HS Dent. Um, he's going to talk about what you invest in during a deflationary period. You know, I, I, I'm getting depressed. So, are you saying just like, okay, I guess we have to deal with it, or is there anything we can do? 
There are a lot of things people can do. First of all, you have to get more of this information. In 30 minutes, we can hit the highlights. We can talk about some of these big concepts. But you have to really see the, the bigger picture and how we lay them out so that you understand the depth of the, depths of the problems that we have. But it doesn't mean that you just go hide under a rock. You don't go cash out everything you have and just hold on to it. You start thinking about it differently. If the things that do well in inflation, real estate, equities, international equities, are not going to be doing well in the years ahead because we have deflation and not inflation, then you have to start investing for the season. We call it an economic winter season. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the winter season means that prices tend to fall. Now, the downside of that means wages tend to fall, and a lot of people are already experiencing that. But it means that if you have cash and you have cash-producing assets, things that have streams of income, then your money goes like this while prices go down. That's a pretty good position to be in because you're actually getting in more of the dollars that you can turn around and spend. What it does mean is you stay away from the pockets of risk. Don't be lulled into a sense of security thinking, oh, it's already over. Real estate's down 30 40% here in Tampa Bay. I should be running out to buy more. You've got another leg down to go. Don't be rushing into equities just because they go lower. Understand it's a long-term trend. And so it's a period of lower growth. There's no question. Don't expect 8 9 10% on your money. But put yourself into a position where you're getting streams of income so that your cash and cash flow goes up while prices go down. Streams of income. That is exactly what this show has been about. It's what we focused on. When you go from accumulation in your life to distribution, you have to have guaranteed streams of income. And those streams of income would mean that you're putting money aside for a period of time. You want to know exactly what the stream is going to be so you can plan on it, not a maybe. And this is what's different about our retirement roadmap than these other things you see from the brokerage houses, which are distribution plans too, but they're based on hypothetical performance of the market, not guarantees. Our retirement roadmap is based on guarantees. So you know what that stream of income is going to be, and then you guarantee the longevity of the stream you have just learned the secret to investing in a deflationary period. We're going to show you exactly what stream we can guarantee for you, how we can work it in on a timeline of your retirement planning when you call 888-882-5578, 888-882-5578. You'll get our free retirement roadmap, which is actually the study we're going to do on what we can provide for streams of income for your retirement. But when you do that, you will also get a free copy of my full report called Inflation or Deflation, America's Monetary System in Crisis and How to Plan for It. Um, it's been great talking with you. Hey, email me. I want to know that you're hearing the show. Email me at bruce at straighttalkwealth.com. That's bruce at straighttalkwealth.com. And uh, we will see you next week. Thanks for listening in. 